0: Hey, just a heads up, there is a brief mention of sexual assault at around seven minutes into this episode. Please take care while listening.
2: I had only worked at the company for seven months, so now I'm going to call my father and I'm going to tell him I need to quit a job that I only lasted seven months. And at that point, I was making more money than my dad had made working 10 years at the same company. You know, I had made more money at that job than my mom has ever made in her lifetime. So you have to explain to them, you know, is it the case that I'm just a, a, a quitter? Like, am I just basically throwing my hands up and saying, like, I can't handle this? That's Erica Chung, a former scientist at the now infamous
0: biotech company Theranos. Erica realized early on that the company's proprietary technology was not delivering accurate blood results to patients. But when she raised her concerns to company leadership, she was silenced. And so Erica decided to not only quit her job at Theranos, but also to report the company to government regulators. This carried huge personal risk. She had signed an NDA when she first joined the company, and so she feared litigation and criminal charges. But Erica saw no other option.
2: Honestly, Maya, the idea of knowing what I knew and having not done anything and knowing that there was something that I could have done about it and I didn't do anything, like that's the real prison, right? Like that's the real purgatory. On
0: today's episode, a Theranos whistleblower shares her story. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. In 2013, Erica Chung was 23 and a senior at UC Berkeley studying molecular and cell biology. She wasn't quite sure what she wanted her first job to be, but she did know she wanted to do something in the sciences that could have a big impact on people's lives. So she went to a campus career fair, and that's where she spotted a booth for the company Theranos. By that time, Theranos was making waves in the biotech world with its new proprietary technology, technology that could run a range of blood tests from just one single finger prick of blood, and in turn revolutionize access to healthcare worldwide. Or at least that's the story Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and CEO of Theranos, was telling the world. Theranos had already started to roll out its devices for use by patients and providers in clinical settings by the time Erica showed up at the job fair that day. Erica was so excited by the idea of working at Theranos and decided to apply. And when when they invite you to come in for an interview, it is with Elizabeth Holmes herself, right? And, and Sonny Balani, the, the COO of the company, which is pretty extraordinary, right, for someone coming out of college to have an interview with the CEO and founder of the company. What do you remember from meeting both of them?
2: The first interview was with Sunny. And I remember just right off the gate him looking at my my resume. And at this point, I'm really eager to get this job and him just really tearing into my resume and kind of being a little stern and straightforward with me. And I'm like, how am I going to turn this around? Like, I don't know if I'm going to get this job with the way that this person's questioning me. But then I kind of just said, "You know, I'm really excited to work with Theranos. I've been very impressed with Elizabeth Holmes and what she's managed to accomplish at such a young age. And it was amazing seeing his demeanor just shift really quickly. And from that moment, then he's like, okay, you know, it sounds like you'll be a good addition to our team and I want you to meet one other person. And so after that, I was able to then start speaking with Elizabeth. And so what was it like to meet Elizabeth Holmes? So initially when she came in, I think I was so starstruck. I had gotten so immersed in the very little of her world that I knew, but everything that was at least on the internet at the time, which was very sparse, uh, was really impressive. So I saw her, I was, you know, surprised that she was going to be the person that I'd be talking to in order to get this job. And um, I remember asking her questions about the technology and what we would be working on. And she said, well, when you work for the company, you know, I'll be able to disclose that. But for now, that's guarded under trade secrets. But yeah, I was, I was really starstruck and just enthusiastic and excited. The fact that I got to work on a what seemed to be cool technology With a mission that I really cared about and for a founder at that time that I seemed to be very impressed by, by the amount of work that, at least on the surface, they seem to accomplish already. You know, it's putting myself
0: in your shoes. I can't imagine how exciting it must be to get a job offer from one of the hottest startups at the time. I'm curious to know what this job offer
2: means to you and your family at this point in time. I think for me personally, it was My journey to even get into college, let alone go through college, was very challenging. And so I really saw Theranos as my own personal kind of redemption story to show people like I was competent, I was capable, that I had this great, amazing opportunity to make an impact working for a great person and everything else. And so when I had gotten this job offer, my parents were proud. You know, they were excited for me that this was my first inroad to my career you mentioned having
0: a tough time before all of this do you mind sharing
2: yeah so I you know I grew up in a humble beginnings I I grew up in a low-income neighborhood I lived with my mom and my dad and my three other siblings in a one-bedroom trailer it was clear to us that It may be difficult to get into a great school. I really wanted to go to Berkeley, um, not being able to afford the same access to good schools. So I was homeschooled. So my parents invested a lot in my education. Both my parents were really hard workers. um, But, you know, we struggled, especially in the early days of trying to just figure out how to uh, build up a life, especially because my parents had me really young. And, um, yeah, when I got to Berkeley, it was this like huge accomplishment because it wasn't very clear if I was going to be able to do that. And when I got there, it was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life, but I had a lot of challenges within the first year of attending UC Berkeley. Um, so the first year that I was there, I ended up, um, falling victim to a series of, of crimes I was sexually assaulted by a group of men. I got robbed at gunpoint and then I was raped and it hit probably with all in a year time span and I largely kept it secret from people because I didn't want to be a burden and I was uncomfortable and I was just scared and felt very threatened. I didn't really talk to anyone about it and about a year in I was really having a lot of problems just uh, with panic attacks and um, what later would be diagnosed as PTSD, but but we weren't very clear on what it was at the time because I wasn't really communicating with people that that these things had happened to me when I was eighteen.
0: Wow, sorry, I'm just taking that in. Um, and so, um, so you're struggling with panic attacks and. I'm assuming what that means is at a certain point you're not sure that you're going to be able to graduate from Berkeley.
2: Yeah. So essentially I'm 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 having panic attacks. I'm definitely not in the strongest mental state. My grades are really suffering. I wasn't sure if I'd be cut out for the sciences because I was like, okay, you're having such a tough time doing simple things like getting to class on time. How are you going to, you know, accomplish doing some sort of complicated chemistry class? Uh, But I told myself, you know what, if they kick you out, then they kick you out. But for now, you just need to try and see this through and see where you get with things. I want to be able to study the sciences This is something I'm passionate about. And luckily, I saw it through and I wasn't the best student and I failed more classes than (laughs) anyone would ever want to. Uh, but I but I made it. I repeated those classes, I stuck to my commitments. I said, okay, let's just try and see this through. And so when I say Theranos was this redemption story for me, it was my opportunity to say, okay, you didn't do so well when you're at university, but you know, you can start new here and you can be a good scientist and a good researcher if you just apply yourself and uh, work for a great company that has a lot of opportunities for you and and that's kind of where that was coming from was okay, here we go. Set the scene for me about what
0: your first day at Theranos is like. I mean, against everything you've just described. I was
2: so excited. I was so excited. It's it's hard to put into words like that dreamlike state that you're in when you finally made it, you know, where you feel at yeah. least that you finally made it. And I I remember because Theranos had so many blockades from going into certain rooms. So you couldn't see from the external what. The office building was like, or what the laboratories were like. So I remember when I got and did the entry interview and I got my badge where I could open all of these doors where I could see Sonny and Elizabeth in their glass offices, or I could go down into the laboratory and swipe in and be able to see all the different machinery of everything. It was, I had so much enthusiasm and so much excitement. And yeah, you're getting the key to this private club, this exclusive club, right? It, exactly. This exclusive club. And um, yeah, I just had so much excitement. Really at the early days of Theranos, I really anticipated that this was a company and a project that I could easily see myself spending the next decade working on. Like that's how much I really was invested in the problem, how much I loved the field of blood testing. Like I, I really was thinking that this was going to be like a next huge chapter of my life.
0: Hmm. So about a month into your time at Theranos, the honeymoon period starts coming to an end, right? You start to notice significant ethical problems with the way that Theranos is conducting its scientific research.
2: And I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit more about some of those red flags. So, so initially when I started at Theranos, I worked in the research and development lab as a lab associate, and then they were trying to integrate me into a clinical setting where you actively process patient samples. And so one day on Thanksgiving, I was asked to work, and we managed to get a patient from Walgreens who came in. And so prior to running a patient sample, you have to do something called quality control testing. And quality control testing is essentially I have a sample where I know what the value is. So let's say the value is 10 and I'll run it on my machine and ideally it comes out something close to 10. So prior to running this Thanksgiving patient sample, I ran this sample and it was coming out like 150 and it was coming out like 20 and 35 and I had ran it like three separate times. And it was all variable results. And so I contacted this helpline called Normandy 911, which was an internal helpline that we had that contacted Elizabeth, Sunny, all of the upper scientists. And we were trying to figure out what was the problem? Why was this failing? And sometimes when the Theranos devices weren't showing good accuracy, people would start doing this process called deleting outliers, like, oh, well, delete that one and see uh, what the accuracy rate looks like. And I was like, okay. And then, oh, no, delete that one or excision that one. I mean, they were essentially
0: defining an outlier as something that didn't conform to their desired outcome. Yes. Which is insane. Yes. I mean, that's not <laughs> what an outlier is.
2: That <laughs> So that's, that is,
0: <laughs> that is yeah. Science 101, dude.
2: Science 101. <laughs> you keep, oh, it, just keep the data, just keep it there. Yes. And so the solution that they came up with was essentially to get another lower level lab associate who had about maybe a year more experience to me. She looked at the data and she deleted the outliers for this and managed to get the quality controls the past. She ran the patient sample and then they sent it out. And I'm looking at this practice, and I keep trying to ask people, like, what is this process of outlier deletion? Because everything in my mind tells me when it comes to running experiments, you keep everything. Even if it makes it the case that the accuracy isn't good or whatever else, there are very, very rare occasions that you delete things. You just maintain the integrity of the data. Because that's, again, that's the beauty of science, right, is to be objective with the Mm information and to be able to see the true reality of what it's what's going on and 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 that was a practice that was very concerning to me because i realized that once you start doing that you start making things appear to be one thing when that might not actually be the truth and
0: these results are being sent to patients and providers it is actually informing care. It's informing what medications you give a patient. It's it's informing their entire treatment process. It's informing their psychological well being. Exactly. Right? When they think they have
2: something and they don't or vice versa. Exactly. To give you an example of like the distress that's sometimes getting a bad result, there was a colleague of mine and she did a total testosterone test. And for women, they tend to have lower testosterone levels. And so she had done one on the Edison devices, which was Theranos' proprietary machine, and it came out extremely high. She was in her early 20s. She's looking at this. Of course, she goes on the internet. What does this mean? And it means potentially she could be infertile. So imagine you're in your early 20s. It's before you're even thinking about having children. At this point, you're just starting your career, you get this blood test, and it's telling you you're potentially infertile. And the sort of like, shock that that could be that now you have this whole consideration about, well, do I have to start thinking about having kids tomorrow or freezing my eggs in like the next year because of this test? And, and so there were real consequences to basically getting this information that was false. And, and so it was, it it, it was quite scary. Because again, I'm no longer a scientist at my lab bench, just tinkering around, trying to troubleshoot, figure things out as I go. I'm actively now testing on patients. And that is just such a different responsibility and different perspective. And so I think for me, it really made me uncomfortable because. I was like, this isn't ready. This isn't ready to start testing on patients. There's just too many issues and the stakes are a bit bit too high. So, Erica, I mean, you you're bold.
0: you you do not hold back when it comes to vocalizing to your higher-ups repeatedly, right? That you don't believe patient blood samples should be run on the Theranos device. And Sonny, who is Elizabeth's second in command, he gets wind of your resistance. And one day confronts you in his office about it. Yeah. How does that
2: conversation unfold? So initially he invites me into his office and he asked me the simple question, like, how do you like working at Theranos? And I was like, you know, I really love the mission of this company. I like what we're trying to accomplish, but I see a lot of problems. We're having problems with these quality control failures, but we're still testing patients. And after I finished saying that, he says, well, what makes you qualified to say that? You're a recent graduate from UC Berkeley and you have no visibility in this company. Why do you think that's true? And have you ever taken a statistics class and you need to essentially make a decision by tomorrow? You need to tell me, do you still want to work for this company or not? And if you want to work for this company, you need to test patient samples without question and do the job that I pay you to do. And I was shocked at this point. I was like, I can't even believe this, right? Because at this point in the company, I was operating with a sense of good faith. Maybe it was the case that there was some sort of miscommunication between what was happening at the operational floor and the executive level management. And somehow they weren't seeing what everyone, all the operators were seeing. And at that moment, I realized, oh, no. There's something different going on here. And, and it was so weird too when I, I think the other thing that was very scary about it is like I was on their team. You know, I work for this company. I'm working 16 hour days. I'm sleeping in my car sometimes. And the fact that someone who is on your team that you are going to attack when they tell you like, I'm bringing this problem to you because it needs to be fixed. I'm not bringing this problem to you because of anything adversarial And I think that also completely changed the dynamic for me of, oh, there's not much you can do here, right? Like now it's the case that this person sees you as a villain, as a competitor, as something else when it's like, I've done nothing but show that I want to see this work too, but not at this cost, not at the cost of potentially violating even our own internal standard, which is to provide quality care to patients, right? like there's just no way it just doesn't make make sense at all to me um so i think from that perspective it was just so jarring right it was so jarring to watch someone act like outside of the own interest of of the organization even at that point you're 23 at the
0: time that you're having this conversation with sunny and i just want to enter your psychology for a bit because on the one hand the scientific integrity alarm bells are out of control. But then on the other hand, when you are young and relatively inexperienced and there's this big chorus that's singing the company's praises and is validating the work that's happening behind the scenes, it's so easy to second guess yourself, right? Like in another environment, things that are so obviously true, things that are so obviously wrong in this case, you might get confused about. And so did you go through any, do you have to face any of those insecurities or second guessing? All the time,
2: you know, all the time, because I was very conscious of the fact that I was young and that I may not have been seeing the full picture or that I didn't have this background. And I think, honestly, the beauty even of that doubt is it really made me put a lot of effort into running experiments where it's like, you can't fight the numbers sometimes. You really can't fight the evidence You know, I wish in retrospect that I had a little more confidence in myself, but I think that also comes with age. Right. This was my first job out of college. Like, it's very hard to think that, you know, everything. I I do want to challenge that a little bit, Erica, because I actually
0: think a hallmark of a good scientist is someone who does question themselves, who approaches what they do with a profound amount of humility. I mean, it's kind of what's required to be good at this. So, yes, do I hope you were like blindly confident? Sure, it would have made your psychological journey easier, but then you wouldn't have been a scientist at heart, which is like wanting to generate evidence, wanting to build the empirical case.
2: Yeah, thank you, Maya, for for pointing that. That is very true. That is very true. And I think that led to some of the frustration of working for Theranos was the fact anytime you challenged everything, it became something that was... uh, in an attack and it's like this isn't an attack this is the process this is the scientific process totally um so erica you're
0: you leave this meeting with sunny you've now had this realization that there actually is no chasm between What's happening in the labs and what the company executives know, they know full well what's happening. And they're actually just trying to intimidate you out of being honest about what's going on on behind the scenes. They're trying to discourage you from being a critical thinker who's trying to actually improve the end product. And and then you end up calling your dad later that day to tell him, hey, dad, you know, I'm uncomfortable working at Theranos. Like, here's what's going on. And given what you've already shared about your upbringing and what this job meant for your family, what was it like to have that call, Erica? It was hard.
2: It was hard. It was hard for so many reasons, right? It was hard because I had only worked at the company for seven months. So now I'm going to call my father and I'm going to tell him I need to quit a job that I only lasted seven months. And at that point, I was making more money than my dad had made working 10 years at the same company. You know, I had made more money at that co- uh, job than my mom has ever made in her lifetime. So you have to explain to them, you know, is it the case that I'm just a, a, a quitter? Like, am I just basically throwing my hands up and saying, like, I can't handle this? It, and, and not only that, but it just, um, yeah, it it was just difficult to know how to navigate this situation because it was so bizarre, right? It was so strange. Like there's no, not a lot of people can fundamentally understand what it's like to be in an organization that, that treats you this way. And you're in such a toxic culture that it's hard to even think normally at that point because it's so bizarre to be in that context. And so luckily my dad responded with like the best thing he could have possibly said. And he said, Erica, you're a smart girl. I trust you, you'll figure it out. And that was it. And he's a man of very few words, but that was probably exactly the words I needed to hear in that moment. And so from that point I knew I would be okay. I'd I'd work it out. And so what do you do the next day? Yeah, so at this point I was um at at this point I was pretty I, I I was pretty depressed. I was like, okay, what are you, you going to do here? And one of the things amongst all of this, because I was really confused, like, do you try and change things internally or do you try, you just move on and go somewhere else? And I think it was very hard for me to figure out. Um, but I, I essentially I decided to quit the company.
0: A company that around that time was valued at nearly $9 billion dollars. After the break, we'll hear from Erica about the fallout after she left Theranos. We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Listen to The unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Company.
0: Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slight for 25% off.
1: Take your business further at
2: tmobile.com/slash now.
0: Erica Chung was 23 when she quit her job at Theranos. She had witnessed unconscionable and fraudulent practices that were negatively impacting real patients' lives. But after Erica left, she was disoriented by the fact Theranos and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, were continuing on this meteoric ascent. Elizabeth was gracing the covers of magazines like Forbes and Fortune, and she was being called the next Steve Jobs. Henry Kissinger, a former U.S. Secretary of State and Theranos board member, took it one step further when he suggested that actually Steve Jobs was just an earlier version of Elizabeth. Erica began to wonder if maybe she had just missed something all along. But then, a journalist from the Wall Street Journal named John Carreyrou contacted her. He had been investigating Theranos for some time, and he asked Erica to be a source for his upcoming
2: expose of the company. I mean, it was scary initially because Theranos made it very clear that we signed non-disclosure agreements and that they would retaliate against us if we said anything to external figures. So there was that fear of their... There could be really big consequences to speaking to a journalist, but then also it was a bit of a sigh of relief. It was like, okay, here is another door, another opportunity to get the truth out in exposing what they're doing in the patient testing realm. And so I was actually like, okay, this is a great channel to sort of let people know what's going on here and... Um, Yeah, I I became one of his sources uh, off the record, of course, and a lot of people didn't know that I was talking to him, Mm. but um, yeah.
0: And what is your interaction with Theranos like at this time, if at all?
2: So essentially, um, as John is doing his investigative reporting, he had to give Theranos the opportunity to rebut his investigative piece. Mm. And at that point, Essentially, Theranos went on this giant witch hunt to sort of figure out and identify who were the former employees that were sources for his reporting. So, uh, there was, there was one. One night I was working late at my new employer's office and my colleagues come up to me and they said, Erica, you need to pack up your stuff because I usually work late and you need to leave with us because there's been a man in the parking lot all day and we don't want you to leave the building alone. So I pack up my stuff and I walk out the door and immediately this guy in this like tinted SUV jumps out and he hands me this letter and I look at it and it's a letter from David Boys, who at the time is one of the top corporate lawyers in the US, and it's addressed to me, but it has an address on there that is essentially my colleague's address because I had just moved out of my apartment and was sleeping on her couch. So at this point, I was really freaked out because what it had suggested to me that uh, they were following me. They were following me. I was now under the prospect of being sued. But also, they had private investigators likely following me. Before we talk about how
0: you responded to the content in the letter, I want to know what kind of psychological toll this takes on you. I mean, to, to know that you're being followed. It's, it's, an, it's an unbelievable invasion of privacy, and it's very, very scary.
2: Yeah, it's, it's terrifying, right? I'm, I'm 23 years old at this point, and I'm wondering, like, I, you just feel so powerless. You're like, okay, what's What's going to happen to me? How do I even? Not only is there the fear that I'm going to be embroiled in debt because of all the litigation, or potentially there might be some sort of criminal charges that are placed upon me, but even my personal safety. You know, what am I going to do? You're talking about a company who has people backing them who are ex secretary of states. You know, if people are following me and What's going to happen to me? They have way more money. They have way more resources. They may have way more political clout. They have way more power than I do. Then it was very, very terrifying. Yeah.
0: So how do you 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 have this letter from David Boyce, who Theranos has hired to be their their lawyer? And and like you said, he's one of the top lawyers in the country. Um,
2: How do you act on this letter? What do you what do you do next? So luckily, I reach out to my network and I contact a bunch of people and I get in conversation basically with a lawyer and they say, hey, you know, a potential opportunity is that you can report to regulators. And, you know, this was an option that wasn't super clear to me. Like people said, well, you can be a whistleblower, but it's not very clear what being a whistleblower is. If you, yeah. you, if you're are, just a normal person word. who's living their I, life, yeah. yes, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I realized at that moment, in order for Theranos to test on patient samples, they had to maintain their certification with the Center of Medicaid and Medicare Services, which is the regulatory body that essentially allows people to test on patients. And so, from that point, I was like, oh, okay, you can report to CMS, which is the abbreviation for that, the Center of Medicaid and Medicare Services. And, and yeah, so that's what I ended up doing. I ended up almost immediately... It's funny, I immediately decided to drive to San Francisco to go to the office to report, but I was so terrified about being followed that I ended up just like crying and circling all over downtown San Francisco, uh, not knowing what to do because I just didn't, I I felt like I was being tracked. So I ended up going and buying a burner phone and contacted the regulatory body and figured out about the process in order to write a report and a complaint.
0: And- When you write to a regulatory body like this, like CMS, are you, does it carry legal protections, right? Are you granted whistleblower status? So is that what was, is that why you thought, okay, so how does that work? So
2: you'd actually, yeah, so you'd actually be surprised. There are very few protections for people who report that work for private companies. I just thought, okay, we're going to file this complaint because, again, I was operating with, they need to stop testing on patients. You can't essentially treat people like lab rats. And that's what Theranos was doing, right? It was essentially experimenting on the public live and telling them that they had quality tests when that wasn't that wasn't the case.
0: Okay, Erica I, Erica, I need to stop you here because what I'm hearing is extraordinary, which is that you get confronted in a dark parking lot outside of your new office building and it's revealed to you that there are people following you on a regular basis. And that leads you to double down and make the choice to go even further with your efforts and to contact a regulatory body. That is stunning. I need you to unpack that for me. I I would just, let me tell you what I would have done, I'd gotten the letter. I would have been like, can I move back home with my parents? Can I just re- reduce all connection with this company forevermore? And just like buried my head. I
2: I don't get it. I, it's, it's so hard. It, it's so hard to be self-aware of it because for me, it makes sense. <laughs> for me, it makes total sense of why I would do this. Um, it, it's kind of one of those things. Like, again, I just wanted them to stop processing patient samples. And when that new door opened, for me, that was just an opportunity that I couldn't imagine not taking right i couldn't imagine not taking and honestly i'll talk to people about this like yes there were moments where i thought wow okay if they go through with the litigation you know you're going to probably go bankrupt and i was like okay well you're a recent grad like you're almost there <laughs> so you're not so okay you know fair play or there was a possibility that you that i would have gotten some sort of criminal charges and i was like Pragmatic with myself and said, okay, well, you love being alone, so <laughs> maybe you'll spend a couple years being alone for a while. In a prison cell. Got
0: in it. a prison cell. Yes. Okay.
2: But but honestly, Maya, the idea of knowing what I knew and having not done anything, and knowing that there was something that I could have done about it and I didn't do anything, like that's the real prison, right? Like that would have been so hard for me to live with myself knowing the things that I knew and having not done anything, like that's the real purgatory, right? To sit with yourself and to realize that you didn't push it forward. So it just, for me, that that was a much worse reality. So, so you end
0: up buying a burner phone, you contact CMS, and then you end up writing a formal letter, right? Um, that ends yes. up instigating a formal federal investigation into Theranos. Yes. And... I just need you to take a quick victory lap here, Erica, because <laughs> your letter results in significant consequences for
2: Theranos. So after I sent the letter, the CMS went in and they, the regulators went in and they uh, conducted an investigation and they found serious deficiencies in Theranos's lab and basically barred them from operating a uh, patient testing uh, lab from that point forward. So it shut down their ability to test on patients. What was it like when you got that news? When I got that news, it was an absolute relief. It was nice to kind of be able to finally be able to rest a bit. I think for me, it was funny, my Theranos saga really ended there in a way. Yeah. Like I stopped paying attention. Yeah, your job is done. My job is done. And, and that was it. So it was, it was a big relief
0: and i know while all of this is unfolding you you make this decision to move to hong kong to to really get away from it even geographically <laughs> right um just yeah. an eagerness i can so re- resonate with that just an eagerness to make theranos a, a definitive part of your
2: past exactly i walked into my new boss's office and i just looked at him and i said i want to move to hong kong and he's like <laughs> okay <laughs> Had no plan, no nothing, but I knew that I just needed to go. I just needed yeah. to just go do something for myself. And then I I packed my bags and I, I left in 2016 to move to Hong Kong. Um,
0: so we're going to fast forward a few years. You're You're continuing to live in Hong Kong and it's 2019 and you're traveling to the U.S. and you're in an airport in the U.S.
2: And you're confronted by a member of the FBI. Yeah, so I'm... Essentially, sitting in an airport, I'm about to board a plane, and as I'm starting to go into the plane boarding process, this man comes up to me as I'm packing away my laptop, and he's like, are you Erica Chung? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) And he's like, okay, don't be nervous, but I'm with the FBI, and here's a subpoena. Uh, You're going to testify in the criminal case against Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani." I mean- don't be nervous, comma,
0: I'm an FBI agent. Should be said <laughs> by no FBI agent moving forward. But I, I appreciate the light empathy he was showing you in that yeah. moment. Um, so then, so the trial keeps getting delayed, right? There's COVID. Elizabeth yeah. Holmes gets pregnant. And, but then finally there's a date. September 2021. Um, You're asked to finally testify. And... What is that like, Erica? I mean, what is it like to see Elizabeth Holmes again?
2: I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea what that was going to be like and was very nervous going into that courtroom. But what was amazing is like once I actually sat down and I was in the witness stand and I looked over and I saw Elizabeth, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, Erica, you're on this side of the table. Like, you didn't do anything wrong here. You didn't do anything wrong. And so it was actually a bit um, relaxing at that point. Still stressful, still stressful. But at least it was like, again, I knew what I needed to do and what I needed to get done. And even though I waited a long time to do the trial, I was gonna be able to walk out of there in three days time. And that was it. That was it. I know
0: you've said that while you did feel this certain kind of calm descend upon you. The other side of this was that it led to a severe relapse of PTSD.
2: Yeah. You know, there was a trial and the final relief and the realization of the fact that like, yeah, I get to walk out of here in three days, but the buildup for that was just so severe. It was funny when you're suffering from PTSD and people are telling you these things like, you're courageous, you're brave, you're a hero. Gosh, I can't even go to the grocery store without having a panic attack right and and that like positioning of um the fact of like oh my god is this what like it is this what being a hero feels like because this sh- this shit's terrible right <laughs> it's just so hard on your body uh and, and everything basically from that point that i received the subpoena And from the fact that I had now been more publicly on the record as being a whistleblower, I couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with me. But um, as time went on uh, and I moved back to the U.S., it started to become more and more clear that I was having a really difficult time managing my hypervigilance. I was having panic attacks again. I was paranoid about people following me. I was having nightmares every other day. And it came to the surface that I was having another big relapse in in PTSD. And in a way, it was good that the trial had gotten pushed because it allowed me to sort of take the energy and focus on, you know, really confronting a lot of the things that I had avoided. You know, I had moved to Hong Kong I had built this whole new life for myself. I really had detached myself from everything Theranos. Like when people in Hong Kong figured out that I reported Theranos, they were shocked because it was something I never talked about. No one had any idea. And I didn't realize like when someone has PTSD, a big portion of it is avoidance. It is trying to not bring up anything that reminds you of the traumatic event. And I think I spent years in that state of just wanting to push all of this as far away as possible from myself. And when I had moved back to the States and the subpoena was happening and I was sort of thrust upon this world, it really caused this huge relapse for me. And so I I think that buildup it was exhausting and and very trying but also maybe a good thing because i was really forced to just sit with myself and really process and and develop a better coping system for the things that happen to me i really resonate with
0: the sentiment around extreme avoidance um when it comes to past pain and trauma and at times where I've been you know really anxious in the past like I will go to the ends of the earth to try to avoid engaging um just to feel safe right I mean I think that's just like a very instinctive human response and I do wonder whether I mean this Theranos saga forced upon you a kind of exposure therapy of sorts that you might have never yourself instigated, right? because it is so painful to have to revisit every single detail and to have to like reengage with that world. And I do wonder if maybe there's one silver lining here, which is that it empowered you to engage differently with past traumas, to maybe be less avoidant with those past traumas and to maybe revisit them in a different way,
2: yeah yeah i I think that's exactly true like it's it's amazing how much it brought to a head my need to be vulnerable and to be able to confront things head on going on with myself. I feel like I needed to just sit with myself and come to a greater sense of um like compassion in a way with myself. And, uh, yeah, it did, it did help. (laughs) It was weird that that sort of instigated the process of the healing of so many things that happened. It was so extended. So beyond, beyond what happened at Theranos, right. It extended from what happened to me when I was a kid or when I was in college. And I think because of that, just in your face, kind of, uh, you will deal with this, whether you like it or not nature of being in this case, like I'm stronger because of it, and having had an immense amount of growth, and uh, in a way, I'm I'm almost grateful for that because it's it's interesting with this case because um, like this was my first job out of college, and now my I have the rest of my life ahead of me. Like I'm really, when you think about it, professionally just getting started, and the fact that now I can have a sense of just almost freedom in a way that I trust myself that I have the right tools and the right abilities to be able to be resilient and to just have that that sense of security in myself is is nice so so even there's always silver linings to things and even though there's like post-traumatic stress disorder there's also post-traumatic growth and I think I'm starting to see um, to see that side of, of this whole experience, which I'm, I think, in, in the grand scheme of things, going to be very, very grateful for.
0: In the years following Erica's letter to federal regulators, a slew of civil and criminal charges were filed against Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes and COO Sunny Balwani. Theranos's valuation plummeted to zero. Elizabeth and Sonny were both found guilty of fraud in two separate criminal trials this year. Elizabeth was convicted of four counts of fraud, and Sonny was convicted of 12 counts of fraud. They will both be sentenced later this year and could face decades in prison. That's a wrap on this season of A Slight Change of Plans. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back in September with more episodes. Until then, have a great summer break. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Emily Rostek, our producer and fact checker, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Neil LaBelle, our executive producer, and our engineering team, which includes Ben Tolliday, Jake Gorski, Sarah Brugger, and Andrew Vastola. Luis Guerra wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker.
2: And so the Edison devices, which was Theranos' actual proprietary machine, could only do 12 of those tests. They couldn't even do as many as people had anticipated. And from what I understand, Erica, even the 12 tests
0: that the Edison could run weren't generating reliable results. That is right.
2: That is right. Yeah. Wow.
0: Okay. so literally just mean it was capable of generating a result, not even like the correct result, an accurate result.
2: Yeah, it's like great. I have a device Jeez, that spits that's a out a great, number. <laughs> that's a
0: great bar for laboratories to have. It it doesn't break. I
2: know exactly. Well, it spits out a number.
0: <laughs> hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses.